Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Eternal City Church's mission and core commitments. We've done this previously. Uh, we haven't done it in a while. And there's so many new people that it's a great opportunity for you to see who we are, what we're about, and especially with membership coming up on September 8th, you could see what we are seeking to do as a church. This will be, believe it or not, an expository message because all of our uh, mission and all of our core commitments are deeply ingrained with roots down deep into the scriptures. And so this will be an expository message. So a lot of scripture is going to appear on the screen and much more could be brought to bear on each of uh, the mission and core commitments. But I'm trying to keep this into 45 minutes. So with that being said, I'm going to speak fast and I'm going to move quick because there is a lot to do here. So let's jump right in. As you can see, this is our logo, and inside the logo is Hebrews 11.10. Hebrews 11.10. This is the foundational verse upon which this church stands, if you will. That's why it's in the logo itself. Within Hebrews 11, 8 to 10, we see verse 10. So let's go through Hebrews 11, 8 to 10 to get the context, and then we'll specifically land on 10 uh, and, and hang there for a minute. By faith, Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now what we see here is, uh, starting in Genesis chapter 12, a man named Abraham who is a worshiper of foreign gods, not a worshiper of the true God. And if you look where he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans on an ancient map, he's from modern day Iraq. Okay? The first Jew, if you will, the first Jewish person was Iraqi. Okay? That's, that's real, real stuff. Okay? And God is going to create a new ethnicity and people and, if you will, religion out of this man. And this person, Abraham, will be a man of faith. A man of faith. Why? Because he listens to God and believes him when nothing in his visual perception says that what he has promised is going to happen. The man is so old, and his wife is beyond bearing children old, and God says, I'm going to give you a child in your old age. And not only that, I am calling you to go from the place of security, the place of wealth, the place where you have foundations, and I'm calling you to go to a place I will show you and that I will give you. And Abraham uproots his family, he uproots his wealth, his massive herds and his business and his livestock and all of his servants, and he moves to a place that God is going to show him. And this is faith. Friends, we believe faith is trusting God, but faith actually shows itself in action. That's why James says in his epistle, you say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. In other words, God's not interested in your words or your claims. He wants to see your actions, and your actions will prove your words, but God is not interested in mere words. And so for Abraham, the proof of his believing God, that God would not only care for him and fulfill the promise to make him a great nation, he says to him, look up at the stars and count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. 
And Moses, who wrote Genesis, says, And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Abraham is the man of faith. As he was going, he does land in the promised land, the land that God promised him. But what's interesting is he never actually inherits it. He rather is a sojourner or a passer-through in the land, living in tents. What's a tent, friends? Does anyone live in a tent here? No. No, you have a permanent dwelling that you either rent or you pay a mortgage on. If you're tenting, you're camping. Yeah, that's what we know of tents. Well, that's the symbol here. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, they lived in tents because they never received roots in the promised land. They were always looking beyond, but temporarily they did not see the fulfillment of the promise. Yet they still believed when there was no sight. Friends, faith looks beyond sight and trusts. That's, that's something to be said for us. Okay? And, and we can make a bunch of application here, but we don't have time. What was happening in the psyche of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who all received the same promises? What was happening in the psyche of Sarah, Rachel, and Rebecca? They were believing God and looking forward to what we would call eternity, to a promised city that is to come. We see this in Revelation 21, which we're not going to go to. But God is architecting a grand and beautiful and glorious and permanent city that will come down out of heaven prepared as a bride for her husband. And we will dwell there, friends, forever. This is the eternal city. And what is hoped for with this church is that we will live presently by faith in this city, serving our family, serving our neighborhood, serving those in our workplace, serving through our workplace, serving the city, all the while knowing this is not our home. Not getting so attached to the here and now that we could not say to die is gain. No, but rather, we are storing up so much massive treasure in heaven that it would be so much gain if we would but breathe our last. That's our hope for you. That's my hope. And friends, you know how dark the days can get. How do you find hope in the darkest of days? This is not how it's always going to be. There is a future coming that is glorious that Paul says, beyond comparison with the present sufferings. This present suffering cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us and in us. Let's keep going. Jumping down a couple verses, these all died. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, this is us. We must look beyond our current street address. How many of you used Google Earth or, or, or Google Maps and you've looked at the top of your house from satellite? It's pretty cool, right? 
Now, what's interesting is you must not see that as your permanent dwelling. Yes, you're inside, I'm inside of Verona, which is inside Penn Hills, which is inside Pittsburgh, which is inside Pennsylvania, and uh, the United States of America, and North America, and the globe. But friends, listen, there is a time coming where that's not going to be my home. A new dwelling that is permanent, that is finally perfect. Anyone else perfectionistic in their tendencies and thinking in this room? I am. I get so frustrated when I go to clean the car and there's more rust. I just want to punch out a window. Like, when will it ever stop? Right? Another 3,000 miles has gone past and it's time to change the oil. Another counseling session and, and so on and so forth. We live in a broken world. How many of you have woken up sore as ever and been like, what did I do yesterday? Anyone else? Yeah, or, or better yet, two days later. Right? The, the next day is not so bad. You're like, oh, it's not so bad. And then day two, you're like, oh my gosh, like where's my cane? Right? Someday, friends, we're going to wake up and it's going to feel like you drank six Red Bulls without the heart racing and without the crash later. It's coming. And you can look forward in the midst of darkness, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of depression, in the midst of trouble and say, this is not how it will always be. And it can give you hope. Hope for the now. To look forward into the future. And that future hope and glory, which is promised to every son and daughter of God, that future hope can come into the now and brighten you up. How many of you need brightened? I need it almost every day. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. Let's move on. 13, 14. For here, here, this present earth... We have no lasting city, no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is Eternal City Church. We want to continue to remind you that this is not your home. And listen, every pleasure, every goodness, every refreshing cold drink you have, listen, is a preview of the coming glory. If you say there's so much goodness here, friends, it is but an appetizer to the main course, and the main course will be just Better upon better upon better and ever increasingly better. And so don't imagine all the glories of this earth as loss when you go into the future. Rather, they will be but shadows of the reality that is to come. And the reality will be so much more solid and beautiful and glorious, including your new body that you will need in order to exist in the new heaven and the new earth and to enjoy this new city. New colors to see, new sounds to hear, a new tongue to experience new food, etc. Let's move on. What's the mission of Eternal City Church? We seek to multiply passionate love for Jesus Christ and those made in his image. This is basically a restating of the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? A lawyer asked Jesus. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or if I could read it directly in the ESV, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All that the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Here's what's being said here in our mission statement. We want to be really clear about who is the God we are to love. Because there's a lot of gods out there, right? Small g. But there's only one true and living God with a capital G. Who is that? Jesus Christ. 
God as defined and revealed by Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. The Spirit whom Jesus Christ sends. And Jesus Christ himself being very God. A very God. And so, we say we want to multiply passionate love for Jesus Christ. The passionate there means that it's whole being. It's, it's body, it's soul, it's strength. It's you have a love for Jesus that is beyond the corny romantic comedies. This is a whole commitment of you over to Jesus Christ. And we want to see that multiply in the city. We want to see it multiply in our hearts, and we want to see it multiply in the hearts of those to whom we have relationship with, even our enemies. For Jesus himself said, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who would malign you and say all manner of evil against you. Even them you are to love. And so we want to multiply passionate love for Jesus Christ and those made in his image. Who's made in his image? Every single person you come in contact with. You can see how, how crushing of a command this is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love those made in his image with increasing love, knowing that they are an eternal soul who will spend eternity in one of two places, either in heaven, or we should say a new heaven and a new earth, or in a place that the Bible calls a place of torture and eternal torment called hell. You know, we don't like to talk about hell. We don't like to think about hell. We like to ignore hell. We like to pretend it doesn't exist. But the Bible makes clear that it does exist and it is populated even now as I'm preaching. So, where are we going to spend eternity? Well, it depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. If you love him. If you give yourself fully to him. In the words of Philippians 2, if you bow your knee and say, Jesus is Lord. Will you be that person, that man, that woman, maybe even this evening. Bow the knee to Jesus, say that he is Lord, and give yourself over to him. And listen, he will receive you in love, and the more love you have for him, the more you will want to please him. God is not interested in just cold duty obedience. No, rather, if I love my wife, and I have affection for her, and passion for her, there is nothing that gives me more pleasure than to please her than to please her. And so in the same way, when we have passionate love for Jesus Christ, we want nothing more than to please him. This is why John can say in 1 John, his commands are not burdensome. No, because we love him, so why would it be burdensome for us to keep his commands? Now, what we see in ourselves is a failure to do what we want to do, right? It's like, I want to do the good and the right and what Jesus commands, yet in myself I find that I fail over and over and over. Yes? And so we turn from that inability and we say, oh God, would you help me, give me the strength? And we dust ourselves off, we turn from the very sin that so easily entangles us and we move towards him, even at a snail's pace, friends, we move towards him. Please do not turn your back on the living God who is the source of light and life. If you would but face him and crawl on your stomach in the dust if need be, but face him and crawl towards him. Do not turn from him, friends, please. I've seen too many people name the name of Jesus, turn from him, and go after the darkness. Let it not be you, and may it not be me.
We have four core commitments at Eternal City Church. Number one, we are seeking to obey the Great Commission to make disciples who make disciples. So, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came to them. This is uh, after resurrection. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and he's about to send the Holy Spirit. And we think by this time he has given instruction to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And then you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus came, and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's an outrageous claim. And you want to be connected to that person who has all authority, not just on earth, but in heaven. What, what does that mean? That means the universe. This is the true master of the universe. I'm an 80s kid, not He-Man, okay? Jesus Christ, no one knows who He-Man is. That just landed on like two people. I'm showing my age here, like He-Man, Skeletor, what, the, what is that? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore... So because I have all authority, I'm going to tell you to do something. You go in my authority because I have all authority, and you, son and daughter of God, you go do something. What? Make disciples of all nations. That word is ethnos, from which we get ethnicities. You make disciples of all ethnicities, baptizing them into or in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them. This is also what it means to be a disciple, to teach them to obey or observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When we make disciples, we show people that they have a new identity. They are now defined by a new father. They have a new family in Christ with a new father, Jesus, our big brother, and then we have a massive new family of brothers and sisters from every ethnicity. Don't miss that in the text. Make disciples of all ethnicities. That means anyone who is united to Jesus is your true brother and sister that will outlast, for a lot of you, your blood brothers and sisters. Outlast that relationship. Because it's predicated on belief and unbelief in Jesus. And whoever is united to Jesus, you are automatically united to them, whether you like it or not. And so, you have a new family. But listen, you also have a new power source for living the Holy Spirit. You are now identified not by your own strength, but now by the strength of another, the strength to love. And friends, remember, Romans uh, 12 says that love does no harm to a neighbor. It's either 12 or 13. My mind is not working right now. Love does no harm to a neighbor. And so when we are full of the love of God, we want to bless people rather than curse them. We want to do good to people rather than do harm to them. We want to see them rise up rather than see them come down. Love does no harm to a neighbor. And so we want to make disciples who make disciples. Now quickly, I think Mark Dever, uh, who's in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, he has the most simple and the most clarifying uh, understanding of what it is to make disciples. And so let's use his um, definition here that could be found in this book, Discipling. If you haven't read this book, I highly, highly encourage you to do so. It's on audio if you're not a, a reader type of person but a listener. Mark Dever says this, to disciple someone is helping others follow Jesus by doing deliberate spiritual good to them. Now that's pretty inclusive. Helping others to follow Jesus by, what do I do? Doing deliberate, that means intentional, spiritual good 
to them. That's discipling. Now, let's look, at, let's look at that in three stages here. You are, one, helping others to follow Jesus. That means there are people who are not following Jesus right now that you are seeking to have them follow Jesus. This is what we could call evangelism or outreach. But you are engaging in discipleship when you are seeking to see someone come to know Jesus because you are doing them deliberate spiritual good by sharing with them the best news that exists. Or maybe before you even share the news, you are befriending them in order that you might share the good news with them. Perhaps you are giving them a copy of the scriptures. You are intentionally doing them good. Here's the intention. Would you please take this and read this? This has helped me tremendously beyond what words could describe. You are doing intentional spiritual good. Number two, you are um, doing the good so that he or she will be more like Christ. So the intention is this. You want to see Jesus' character formed in someone. Jesus' character show up in someone's life. You have no idea what it would do to you if everybody surrounding you was more like Jesus. Your life would be fantastic. But see, the reason it's so dark is because everyone around you is not like Jesus enough. And And neither are you. And neither am I. And so we all need to become more Christ-like. And what will happen? It will raise up the entire environment. The entire environment. And look, what's the new heavens and the new earth going to be like? It's going to be populated with men and women who are like Jesus. That eternal city is going to be populated by people who can't be rude. Because love is not rude. You remember 1 Corinthians 13, right? It doesn't boast. It's not envy. It's not easily angered. The more we become like Jesus, the more we will bless those around us just by being around them and vice versa. The more Jesus-like people you have surrounding you, the more your experience will be good is a good way to say it. So this is very practical. It's not just theological, it's not just heady, it's not just theory. This would have massive impact in your marriage. This would have massive impact in your workplace. This would cause you to be a peacemaker rather than a deliberate instigator. Because blessed are the peacemakers. You would be more merciful because blessed are the merciful. And so on and so forth. You would be doing intentional good. Number three, to do discipleship requires one thing you actually have to be a disciple too. So, so we don't engage in discipleship unless we ourselves are disciples of Jesus himself. And so we don't, we don't want to take on an activity without ourselves being in the discipleship place or location. What does that mean? That means that we ourselves are following Jesus. That means that we ourselves have a new father and a new big brother and a new family and a new power that we are seeing worked out in our daily lives. It means that we are seeking to obey all that he's commanded. So that needs to be us. How, how are we doing in our discipleship first? Are we following Jesus is the question. So forget one and two. Maybe you need to start at three. Literally throw out one and two if you, if you haven't engaged in three yet. That's where you start. So... Where are you at in one, two, and three? 
If you find yourself in number three, yes, I'm in Christ. Yes, I am being transformed into his image. Yes, I love Jesus. Okay, now you need to start helping others follow Jesus. And then number two, you do that by being deliberate and doing spiritual good to them. And is not God the creator of the universe? Couldn't he give you some creativity and discipleship? Like if you sat and prayed for even five minutes, God, how can I do some intentional spiritual good to someone in my life? You don't think the creator of the universe will give you a few ideas? Is he lack in creativity that he can't share with you some insight? Or maybe even, here's what I'm doing in the people's lives that you have contact with. And here's what part I want you to play. Let's move on. Number two of our four commitments is to unify people. Unify people, we use uh, the cultures, classes, colors, and fourthly capacities model there. And what that means is colors, different ethnicities. Okay, we want to see the unifying of different ethnicities because that's whom we are to make disciples of. All nations, all ethnos, all ethnicities. We want to see truly family lived out in our lives. Whoever's united to Jesus, they are your family. Colors. Classes. This means socioeconomic. The church should look like poor people who are being loved and wealthy people who are being loved and everywhere in between. Cultures. Let's say you love country music. And let's say over here you love hip-hop. Okay? Only recently has that stuff merged in a very Billy Ray Cyrus way. Okay? Only recently, though. Okay? Uh, up until very recently, there was some clear cultural dividing lines. Okay? But for us, we want to see those, no matter what culture you find yourself in, if you're a Christian, culture is nothing compared to your in-Christness. Your ethnicity is nothing compared to your in-Christness. Your socioeconomic status is nothing in compared to your in-Christness. And what about capacities? Capacities is some of you have a lot of skills. Some of you have intellect beyond our imaginations. Your IQ is way up there. Your accomplishments are unbelievable. You have a resume. You have a portfolio. And some of us got nothing. Nothing. And then furthermore, some of us are even handicapped and hurting. And you know what? God does not look at resumes and say, you're better, you're worse, you're in the middle. No, he says equal and you will all stand before me as equal. This is Revelation 20, 11 through 15. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the Lord, standing before the throne. And from that throne, earth and sky fled his presence. And the books were opened, and the dead were judged according to what was written in the books. You see, we need to be about unifying peoples because this is what the gospel does. The gospel takes warring people and makes them lovers. The gospel takes those who were once at odds and brings them together. You realize I'm talking about you and God. You and God. And so as an outworking of you and God who were once at war and opposed to each other, now there's peace between you and God. Now you are to go and to make peace. Here's the text, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 18. From now on, Paul's uh, using language, you used to not be in Jesus and now you are. And so from now on, now that you're defined differently, you're a disciple, your identity is in Christ. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Flesh is merely human categories, not for Christians. No, no, we don't look at somebody and make a snap judgment and judge according to the flesh. 
And if they're Christians, listen, I would highly advise you, don't even judge them about where they're currently at in the sanctification process. Because if they're gods, he has committed to them to get them way past where you find them. And isn't that encouraging for your soul? That he's committed to getting you further than you're currently at? That's good news for me. It's good news for me. And so from now on, we don't judge anyone. We don't regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, you know, Jesus was not impressive uh, physically nor materially, but he was impressive when he would speak. No one speaks as this man. He was impressive when he would talk to evil spirits and people and they were forced to obey. It was pretty impressive when he would speak to the wind and the waves and they obeyed him. It was pretty impressive when he took a little bit of food and just kept somehow multiplying it into a lot of food. It's pretty impressive when he speaks to organic life like a fig tree and it withers and dies. Or he grabs a little girl's hand who's in death in the grave and pulls her out of the grave and she breathes. Now, that's pretty impressive. And for the Christian, we say yes and amen. I see who he is. But prior to that, we're like, yes, says who? There's a lot of religions. I mean, all roads lead to heaven. I mean, he, he claims to be the only way to God. I mean, isn't that a little narrow? I mean, isn't the broad way so much more inclusive and with it in 2019? and so on and so forth. That's regarding him according to the flesh. But those who are in Christ know we see him not according to the flesh. We see who he really is, who he claimed to be, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we say yes and amen. We believe you are who you say you are. And judging according to the flesh would be putting him in the same category as Gandhi or Socrates or Plato or some other Oprah-like figure. Yeah, he does a lot of people good. He helps people. They're great. No, we see him as the God who created all things. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. All right, therefore, 17, if anyone is in Christ, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, he, we could say she, is a new creature or creation. That word could be translated either way. You're new. You're not the same you that you were. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So God the Father reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, as you've been reconciled, now you go out on mission and you reconcile people to God. And listen, friends, as people are reconciled to God, Instantly, they're reconciled to you. And it's our job to play it out practically. It's our job to play out the spiritual reality practically day by day. Same with your righteousness. You're righteous in Christ, but you know you're not righteous when you get up tomorrow morning. And what is the goal of sanctification? You become what you are spiritually, day by day by day. And so we are reconciled in Christ Cultures, classes, colors, capacities. But we need to work that out. Yes? Shake your head, yes. We need to work that out. And so that's what we're trying to do. Is it messy? Have we made mistakes? Absolutely. Is it always fun? Is it always a great conversation? Is there disagreements in how it should be done? Of course. And we're still going down that path, down that road. 
Now, C.S. Lewis helps us here, okay? This is from The Weight of Glory. I've listened to The Weight of Glory a lot. I should have it memorized by now, but I don't. You ready? This is every person you come in contact with. This is the people we are to be unifying. You ready? It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Notice the small g. And you have to know, C.S. Lewis was a, a master of old mythical literature, which is why he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay? Possible gods and goddesses, small g. Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one of these destinations. Remember discipleship? Doing intentional spiritual good to someone that they might be more like Jesus, helping them towards that well-done, good and faithful servant. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Amen? There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immoral, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. He, he's saying we should not walk around with just, why are you laughing? You know, that's not what he's calling for. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be that of a kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. I love that. What's being said there is you have no idea who you're sitting next to right now. You have no idea who lives next to you in the apartment or the house next door. You have no idea who is cashing out your groceries in the checkout line. You have no idea who's making that $20 Starbucks drink for you with all the caramel and the frill on top. It'll be 22 next week and you'll still buy it. The Grandes went from like $1.80 to 2 Now they're like 300 And I'm like, I got, you know, the siren just calls. It's, it's that logo that keeps calling me. The idea is you have relationships with immortal beings. You are an immortal being. Do you realize it? How can we kick against unifying people and treating them with love and respect? Don't you know who they are? Don't you know who you are? move on. Number three, training and challenging men to lead sacrificially. Now, this core commitment is, yes, male. And here's why. I challenge you to just do a Google search of the major shootings within the last year and see who the perpetrators are. Major shootings. No females. 
all young men, mostly all young men. Stephen Paddocks was a little older. I think he was in his 60s. When abuse happens and the police are called, very rarely is it a woman who has, you know, beaten up her man. Very rarely. It happens, but it's rare. Very rarely do I see single dad killing it. Do you? No, I've seen single mom killing it all the time. Guys, I'm going to take a shot. I love you. But I don't see many women playing video games. I just don't see it. Like, like they're not killing it with their Xbox, uh, you know, headphones on with a team of ladies going to war digitally. Now, I love you, and I'm not saying you can't recreate, but eight hours at a time? And your grass is 10 feet high? Brothers, this should not be. And, and on and on I could go. You see, men need challenged and trained how to be men. Our culture isn't helping. In fact, our culture calls manliness toxic. And it's not. Now, there is such a thing as toxic masculinity. Abuse is toxic. And we will train you to never be abusive because that's not godly or manly. But manliness is not toxic. I hope you know that. No. So what is the essence of manhood? I tell every man this, and I see their eyes light up. The essence of manhood is you taking responsibility. There it is. Tweet it. It is this. You take responsibility for you first, and then maybe others. Maybe a wife. Maybe some kids. Maybe some who are not even your kids biologically. Maybe some neighbors who are hurting. Maybe some friends who are hurting. Maybe some property that's hurting. And so on and so forth. You take responsibility, brother. And so we, we, I have found this. When men are called out of their complacency, they rise up. And we've seen it in this church. Eddie and I, you know, this, this is not sexist. This is not patriarchal. I'm not pushing the patriarchy here. But listen, we, when we came together to plant this church, Eddie was like, listen, the, most churches are dominated by females. And we don't want to see that happen. <laughs> now, I love you ladies, but we intentionally said we are going to go after the men because, listen, when the men thrive, guess who else thrives? Women and children. You know what happens when the man is not being man and taking responsibility? The women and the children suffer. And the neighborhood suffers. And the city suffers. And the culture suffers. And the United States suffers and so on and so forth. You know, we, we've done work in Uganda. Uh, and we were in a specific area called Gulu, which had uh, ch ch child warfare. They were capturing the children and they were making them soldiers and they were making them shoot their own family. And guess who was doing it? Mobs of women? No. Mobs of demon-possessed men. And you have to be demon-possessed to capture six to ten-year-olds and make them shoot their own family. And that's what's called a man crisis, friends. And let it be in the culture, but not in this church. Amen? All right, so what verse are you going to use? Well, I could have used a hundred, but this one is... I think a good one because it's the qualifications for a pastor, an elder in the church. And why would you bring up the qualifications for a pastor and elder as training and challenging men to lead sacrificially? Well, because 
the Bible lays out a follow me as I follow Christ example. And so the, the leaders in the church have to be of a certain type that men can follow. Not in every detail, not in dress, not in style or language or any of that. No, in character. In character. And so let's look at it. This is a trustworthy saying. Paul says to Timothy, his son in the faith, he's saying, Timothy, you raise up leaders at the church of Ephesus, and they have to be men. And here's the deal. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, which is pastor, shepherd, he, he desires a noble task. If anyone wants to shepherd God's people, that's a beautiful thing, Timothy. Don't despise that. Don't smash that ambition. Encourage that. It's a good thing. Therefore, an overseer, one who oversees a flock of people, must be above reproach. Drunk drawer term that says no one can point at something in your life and be like, what is that? No one can look at your Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and be like, what is that? No one can look at your search history on your phone and be like, what is that? No one can go through your Netflix account and be like, what is that? And on and on and on. Above reproach. If your phone was tapped and we could hear your conversations or read your text, what is that? What is that? No, above reproach, meaning no one can approach you and say, what is that? Drunk drawer. Now, that, that's a huge high calling. And no man can be perfect at it, but they must always be striving. And when someone comes with a charge, they need to take it seriously and seek if it's true and accurate to repent. To repent. The husband of one wife, literally you could translate the man of one woman. In other words, they're not lusting all over the place. And in some cultures, literally, you can't be married to more than one person. Again, as we were working in Uganda, uh, polygamy is normal. You can marry two, three, four, five wives. It's coming for us soon. I think within the next couple years, maybe five, it's coming. And so this will mean more than it does now. Because you can only marry one wife. It means, brothers, you have eyes for one woman if you're married. One woman. And your affections are for her and her alone. And that is to be led by the elders of the pastors if they're married. They're not to be flirting. They're not to be treating other women inappropriately. They're not to have uh, in Instagram relationships. or fa No. One woman, man. Sober-minded, which means you think clearly. You're not outrageous in your vision. You're not wild and crazy. You're sober-minded. It doesn't mean uh, that you don't have ambition or you don't think forward. It just means you're sober in your thinking. You, you assess with wisdom, okay? You are self-controlled. Now, this is a huge one. Brothers, our anger is the one thing that gets us more than anything else, is it not? Like, I've heard it said that men have two emotions, sleep and angry. Yeah? No? No. You have control of you. You know how you get control of you? When the Holy Spirit grabs a man up. When the Holy Spirit grabs you by the shirt collar and picks you up, you know what happens? You then have control of you. It's a beautiful thing. And so when you're angry because I'm a man, I get it. When you're angry, you know what you do? You cry out to God before you destroy something. Either someone's day, or how someone thinks about themselves, or your property, or someone else's property. 
No, you cry out to God, oh God, control me before I do something I'm going to have to repent of. You cry out to God for help. And you're moving towards God in your sin, in your sinful anger, and, and so on and so forth. This is not a message about men, but this is a core commitment of ours. He, he has to be respectable. He has to be hospitable, which means welcoming to strangers, respecting, uh, respected by the community. It means able to teach. Now, this is the one skill that elders have to have that men don't have to have. Elders have to be able to teach. They can't be drunkards. They can't be violent, but they have to be gentle men. Manly gentleness, that is possible. You could be manly and gentle. Not quarrelsome, which means you're not always trying to pick a fight, in person or online. You're not drawn to controversy. You're not quarrelsome. You're not a lover of money, okay? Because when you have some authority given by God, it is tempting to take advantage of people. And it will show up sometimes with money. And you've seen the preachers on TV, haven't you? Like, I, I need a new Bentley, and I need a new jet, and I need a new suit, and I need a, I need a new uh, $400 t-shirt. I mean, that's a real thing for a lot of pastors. Like, the newest Jordans. And you think I'm kidding. Go on Instagram. It's crazy. Okay. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. This does not mean the children don't sin, because guess what children are? Sinners. Guess what sinners do? Sin. It means he deals with it. He, he doesn't go hide when the children are rebelling, and you deal with that, honey. No, he takes responsibility for his children. That doesn't mean he beats them. It means he handles their disobedience and he speaks to them in a respectful and loving way and disciplines. And again, we're not doing a parental message here, but, but there you go. All right, now, that being said, challenging and training men, the elders have thought long and hard. Have we, by, con by unintentional consequence, neglected the ladies? And what we've said is yes, we have. And what we've decided to do is not to take away this core commitment of training and challenging men, but rather add a fifth core commitment, which is equipping women for ministry. Okay, we'll get to the church planning last. But our new core commitment is going to be equipping women for ministry. And we want this to be a, a core commitment that the ladies engage the ladies and train them for ministry. What the ministry is, is discipleship. It's the same ministry as the guys. You ladies are image bearers of God called to do the same work Make disciples. And we understand you need equipped as well. So that comment about women-dominated churches, we want to see an equality of ministry happening in the church. We want to see an equality of ministry happening in the church. And we want to see the ladies equipped to do so. I know I'm running out of time, but very quickly, Luke 8, 1 to 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from town to town to village, uh, village, town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. These are the apostles. These are the ones who are uh, the main people Jesus are discipling. Okay, get that. That's, that's the context. The 12 are with him. These are Jesus' trainees. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. So they're following Jesus as he's traveling from town and village and another. So these ladies are also with the 12. Do you see that? Now watch this. 
Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. Many others. Many others. These women were helping to support them, the twelve and Jesus, out of their own means. In other words, Jesus had a lot of women disciples. And you know that the, the first witnesses of the resurrection were who? Women who in that culture, were not, their, their testimony was not even uh, brought in for court. Couldn't use women in court to testify. And so Jesus honors women in the Bible. Here's another one, Titus 2.3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Women are to teach what is good. And you remember uh, Pr- Pr- Aquila and Priscilla, right? You remember they show up in Acts chapter 18 and, and they come out of Rome because all the Jews are dispersed from Rome by order of, of the emperor and they have a church that meets in their house. They together, husband and wife team, take Apollos who's a little bit off in his theology and they give him a little more clarity in the gospel. And interestingly, Paul actually refers to Priscilla first as the wife and then Aquila second, which means she was probably more ministering than he, probably. Otherwise, why would you do that? And, and I could use text after text, but here's one more. We just finished Philippians. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have, look, labored side by side with me in the gospel. There it is. Women laboring side by side with the apostle Paul. So I I don't need to tell you ladies this. You know this stuff, right? But what we have decided to do as elders, okay, we're seeing as a consequence of our core commitment to train and challenge men, men raise up, rise up. We love it, okay? What we haven't thought about was, will the women be left in the dust? And so we're, we're seeking to do something about it. What will be done is, ladies, you will be getting clear information on how to get engaged very soon. Behind the scenes, it's all being worked out. It's all being planned. It's all being plotted. There will be a lot of goodness and opportunity for the ladies to be trained and equipped for ministry. And lastly, uh, we're going to try to plant church planting churches. Okay, we are part of the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. The local church as the primary means of God's strategy is a core, one of the five core beliefs of Acts 29. Matthew 16, 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter had just said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says to Peter, well, I tell you, your name is Rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my church. So Jesus is the builder of churches, and we believe, I think you could just read the book of Acts and make a clear case for this, that the local church is the central place from which ministry gets done, discipleship. It is the focal point of God's mission on the earth, or as Acts 29 says, the local church as God's primary mission strategy. Now, we love parachurch organizations. We love humanitarian organizations that are Christian. But the local church is God's purposeful mission. He says it, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And those of you who are connected to the church, branch out and start sub-ministries. And it's not that God doesn't work through sub-ministries. It's just that his focal point,
point of ministry is the church, and every disciple is to be connected to a local church.